Hebrews chapter 11. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And as he went, and he went out not knowing where he was going, by faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. By faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites, 
and gave directions concerning his bones. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land. But the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth, and all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God had, all, had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, real quick, this wasn't in the announcements. I want to just take, this is a little bit out of order, but I, I just want to take uh, 30 seconds to pray for a friend. Uh, one of the, the values we have in our church is um, we, we really love the other churches in our city. And we think that that should actually be a core value for every church, really. And um, it's often the case that that is not uh, given any sort of public demonstration or any sort of, it, it never really works itself out. And uh, a good friend of mine is uh, starting a church here in the city. It's actually kind of closer to where I live than, than this side of town. But as you know, our city needs churches in every part of the town. And so um, his name's Garrison Green. I've known him for about six or seven years, maybe, maybe more than that, actually. And, um, and their church is called Veritas State. And so I just want to pray for them real quick. 
they're, they're starting to uh, public meetings today, and then we'll get right back into the text. So if you could pray with me. Father, we thank you for the call of the gospel and how you equip people to go and start churches. And Lord, we thank you that you've prepared Garrison uh, through his time in Columbus. And Lord, we, we ask that you would protect the Green family and that you would strengthen their hand over on Xenia Avenue. We pray that they would be a light in a terrible part of town. And Lord, we are just so filled with uh, brotherly affection for the different ways you've worked in churches. We, we remember Arbor Church and our, our uh, help that we've received from Bethel. We pray that, that Veritas would have a great opening and that you would use them mightily for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. So thank you for uh, indulging me in that brief detour. One of the things that we've been looking at in the book of Hebrews is the grand narrative of a warning against apostasy. And just to define apostasy really quickly, it doesn't mean uh, to adopt strange doctrine. That, that's a word called heresy, which you may be more familiar with than apostasy. Apostasy means to fall away from the faith so as to renounce or reject what you previously held. And if you haven't been with us, I'm going to just recap. We're in the middle of a book, uh, uh, the book of Hebrews, and it's 13 chapters, and we're now at the 11th chapter. So there's a lot of context that we have to resurrect or recover to actually understand what this chapter is about. This chapter is not just a uh, highlighting of different stories in the Bible that are disjoint. If you are a student of the Bible, you know there are hundreds of stories like this and even some of them sound more uh, terrifying. Um, you know, for example, Daniel and the lion's den uh, was just briefly mentioned in, in a vague reference, but the story of Esther really isn't even there. And yet Esther's story was coming against the people, and Daniel was merely coming against, Daniel's encounter in the lion's den was really coming against Daniel. And so the question really is not, what uh, are these the biggest and best stories that the Bible has to offer about perseverance, but what do they mean in the context of the book of Hebrews? So really quickly, I'm just going to cover what the book of Hebrews has been talking about so far. In Hebrews 1, we saw that Jesus Christ was the final word from the Father, that God had spoken in various times, in various ways, uh, in the days of old, both through patriarchs and kings, prophets, priests, and he had testified of the righteousness that was to come through the giving of the law, through the prophet's words, and now he has finally made a manifest, completely crystal clear, unveiled demonstration in his son Jesus. Jesus himself said, if you've seen me or if you've heard from me, you've seen the Father. And so in seeing Christ, the people of God are given a demonstration of the Father and of true righteousness. And then the author of Hebrews begins to go on an integration with the Old Covenant scriptures. He examines the temple and tabernacle system of Moses and then compares it in contrast to what it pointed forward to. He says over and over again that these are shadows and types. These are pointers to Jesus Christ. If you've never seen a, a really convincing sign that points someone else, somewhere else, perhaps you might think of it in a modern context of being like a hyperlink. Every time that they interacted with Moses, they were supposed to see something beyond that. 
And the book of Hebrews says that this is Christ. Christ not only was the pointer or the final, the real substance of the shadow, but as being the substance, that thing which is the shadow is ready to pass away. This is really the grand narrative, the meta arc, if you will, of the story in, book, in the book of Hebrews. He says at the end of chapter 7, he says, <clears throat> uh, sorry, at the end of chapter 8, excuse me, he says, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. And so what he's talking about is the fact that the old covenant system with its tabernacle and temple is ready to be set aside, and God is going to set aside it in a very dramatic way as we're going to see in the next chapter in Hebrews 12, but we've seen little touch points here and there that is, as we've seen, nothing other than the destruction of the city of Jerusalem in 70 AD at the hand of the Romans. And the great warning of the book of Hebrews is the danger of falling away from Christianity and giving into the doctrine of the people called the Judaizers. Now, we've, we've touched on that in great detail, but I'll briefly mention what they were doing in case you are unaware, which is totally fine. The Judaizers, which are not really a common force today that you or I have to reckon with, we have our own issues that are going on theologically today, but in their day, they were trying to say that those who come to Christ have merely adopted the Messiah, but the Messiah is not given to anyone other than the people of Israel. And the people of Israel are marked by a number of different signs, one of those being circumcision, the other is external obedience to the law, and conforming to the priests and the sacrifices. And the book of Hebrews is saying that Christ is the sacrifice, and therefore there are no sacrifices that still need to be given. He's the true temple. That, for that reason, the temple no longer remain, is going to remain. And this is written in a time of very brief overlap between when the temple was still on the earth in the city of Jerusalem and the time where God was unveiling the new temple, the people of God. Now, of course, that new temple it comes down from heaven, as we're going to see in, in the next chapter, but that is what he's speaking about when he's saying that these were men of whom the world was not worthy. He's not talking about the fact that they are not citizens of earth, but rather citizens of the celestial realm, but rather that the new heavenly Jerusalem is coming down. That's really what it's about. It's not about the fact that these people will never find a home, and we, like the patriarchs, will never find a home, but we are finding a home in the new Jerusalem. Therefore, we have no need to revert back to the old Jerusalem. I, I hope you'll see that very clearly, especially in verse 15 of this chapter, as we get into examining the different sections. So first, I want to talk about what is the nature of faith? How is it the case that Abraham believed in the gospel, according to Galatians and also this passage? How is it that the patriarchs of old, who did not know of Christ, were able to, by the Spirit of God, see Christ by the Holy Spirit in time, in the future sense, and trust in him? It's my uh, strong belief, I think the, the Bible is extremely clear, that those who have come before are one and the same with those who are, are now in the in, uh, in a context of having heard the gospel explicitly. And so, really, my, my goal is to examine how was their faith exactly like our faith? And what really is the nature of faith? That is, we use the word faith often, but it's 
rarely defined in a concrete way. I hope to do that for you today. Um, not, not as if I'm going to be the first one to do that for you, but to really draw to what is the core? What is faith at its most essential element? And then we're going to look at God's revelation as creator. I'm convinced strongly that if you attack the foundation, the rest of the structure is, is swayed and damaged. And, and it's no surprise that the Hebrew writer, in covering the entire Old Testament, begins with the revelation of God as the creator God. I want to look at this discussion of the heavenly city and how it actually ties into each one of the narratives which are, are highlighted. Each one of them, for the most part, has to do with leaving a city and entering into a future city by faith. And then finally, as I mentioned, I believe Abraham was a Christian. I believe Moses was a Christian. Now that sounds strange because Christ was not revealed, but the Bible is explicitly clear, even, even identifying Moses as considering suffering with Christ. And so I want to see that in the context of the eternal covenant, which is really a, a major emphasis of this book. So the, the very beginning of this chapter describes faith as evidence of something else. Many, many people who are either encountering Christianity for the first time, or perhaps they've imbibed of what we know as militant atheism, they, they describe Christianity and other religions, but mostly they attack Christianity saying it's a leap of faith. That is, you know, you, get, you can go so far with your reason, and then when reason fails, you need to take a leap of faith or a jump of faith or a gap in your reasoning or logic. But it's actually not the case at all. He says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for. What does that mean? Faith is the surety or the seal or the sign. It's the sign of an inward reality. So faith, he's saying faith is produced by something existing in the invisible realm that is in the heart of a person or the heart of a people. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Faith does not give you the things hoped for, but rather faith is the assurance. It's a byproduct of having the promises of God enter into you. And when I begin to say having the promises of God enter, I mean that is how God normally speaks. He declares his word, he gives promises, and those promises are uttered either through direct revelation, as with the patriarchs of old who heard the voice of God, or through the transmission of either the scripture in, in a written form or the oral traditions before the fact. It's understood by most theologians, both uh, the Hebrew theologians before Christianity and also the Christian theologians as well, that the books uh, of the Bible, the first five, are called the Pentateuch. They were written by the hand of Moses. And yet we see Abel, who was believing in the promises of God. And the question is then, how did Abel hear? Well, surely Adam and Eve would have told their children about the promises of God. They would have said, they would have reminded them of where they came from, a garden, and they would have uttered forth these things to their children. And so even before Moses gets around to writing Genesis 1, Abel had heard of the promises of God, and he believed in them and trusted in them. So, faith being the assurance of things hoped for, we see that it is itself not the thing which is hoped for. It isn't as if faith is mustered up by the individual. Hebrews 11 is not telling you to well up within yourself resolve to obey God. 
Hebrews 11 is saying that the way the patriarchs and prophets of old were able to overcome their temptations and sufferings were because they hoped and trusted in God. Verse 2, for, it, by, for by it, that is by faith, the people of old received their con- commendation. A commendation from God is the approval, the justification, the marking of or passing of as righteous. He's saying that by faith, the people of old received a con- commendation from the Father, which is the opposite of condemnation, a commendation or a reward or a verification. These are my true children. Those saints of old who've gone before obeyed God's commands through faith. It's never the case that the law of God was given to the people so that they could earn righteousness by performing the law. But rather the, that law, which can't, comes after all, almost all of the major covenants of God in the Old Testament scriptures, that law was merely codified for the establishing of the national religion of the Israelites. The patriarch's faith, that is trust in God's promise, was the motivating force. I want you to understand this clearly. It says, when it says by faith, and then it names the person it's discussing, that person, the subject of that sentence, is said to be doing those things by faith. The inward motivation for Abraham when he was to slay Isaac was that he understood that God's promise will not be broken, rescinded, modified, damaged, or transformed, or, or it's not a bait and switch. The father is not saying, I'll give you a, a multitude of people through Isaac. Oh, wait a second, let's change it up. Now let's have it be Ishmael, because I want you to slay Isaac to see if you really trust me. God is proving his people. God is demonstrating what's at work in Abraham, but he's not doing it in order to tempt them with the idea that the promise may not be really true. Each one of them overcomes their circumstance, overcomes the situation and oppression and and suffering by trusting that God is true, though every man be a liar. This is why the Hebrew writer says all of these things were done by faith. So, is the Hebrew writer saying that because they were considered righteous, it was because of their obedience? Absolutely not. The Hebrew writer is not encouraging his listeners to just, by the example of a a whole bunch of prophets of old, just to buckle down and batten down the hatches and weather the storm. He's not telling them just to, to bunker in and weather the storm irrespective of God's promises, but rather he's saying to examine the example of these patriarchs and prophets and not imitate their obedience but imitate their means of obedience. And that distinction is very important. He's not saying that you need to be like Abraham in that Abraham did whatever God asked, irrespective of his inward motivation to believe God to be true, but rather to believe God to be true like Abraham did. This faith in God was causal to their obedience not the result of their obedience. It doesn't say that Abraham was going to offer up Isaac and therefore God granted him faith, but rather that that faith was the cause. It came first. It it preceded in his heart the obedience. So before Abraham understands and decides to obey God's command, he first obeys God's command by reflecting on God's promise. And that promise is based on, rooted in, the nature and character of God. 
That is what it means for Abraham to do these things by faith. God declares his promises to his people either through the direct revelation, that is, he spoke to Abraham, or through the writing of scripture. Over and over again, we see the kings of old reading things in the scriptures, and that is informing their obedience. Those who do follow God, that is, those who obey him, always face opposition from the evil one and those who are in league with the evil one. By saying you will face opposition from the evil one, I'm not saying that Satan himself has your number on speed dial. Satan is a limited being. Satan has limited capacity. Satan is being bound and is bound. He does not have your number on speed dial. He can't read your mail. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, but there is this misunderstanding of spiritual warfare rampant throughout the church, especially those branches of the church that would identify themselves as charismatic or, or into the things of the spirit, where they elevate the status of the evil one. By saying that these prophets and patriarchs of old suffered by the hands of the evil one, I do not mean that Satan himself came against these various patriarchs and prophets, but rather that they suffered by the hands of evil men and oftentimes through evil and oppressive spirits. Over and over again, you see these patriarchs are doing war to establish the kingdom of God, and they overcome by faith. And that war carries on today, even though it's been improved greatly by Christ. So ultimately, this faith that they have, which allows them to face opposition, to face temptation and persevere, it is done in the context of trusting God. You can equate those in your mind. Faith in God is trusting that God is true and he will not lie. That really is what faith is. Faith is not some belief that despite your circumstances, everything's going to pan out. That, that's a doctrine rampant in what's called the faith movement today, where they, they encourage their, their people to, to don't, you know, don't give in to that lying temptation that you have a sinus infection. God said you're healed, therefore... That's not what faith is. Faith is trusting that God will never change his promises. I I would, believe me, if that were the case, I would love that because I routinely have sinus issues. The point being that faith is not something that you well up. Faith is a condition and a disposition of the heart. This is why when the disciples say to Jesus, increase our faith, he responds to them, saying you only need faith as small as a mustard seed. See, Jesus is is saying you're thinking about it wrong. Faith is not a quantity that you well up within you or you create on your own. Faith is an orientation. It's a disposition of the heart. It either trusts God or if you do not have faith, it does not trust God. Verse 6, it says of Noah, a summary statement from the writer, he says, without faith, it is impossible to please him, that is God. Why? Because God considers faith to be trust in him. It would make no sense if God allowed you to please him without believing in him, right? For whoever would draw to God must believe that he exists, that God exists, and that he rewards those who seek him. And understanding God's promises has to be anchored in the light of who God is, the nature and character of him. So I want to talk briefly about verse 3, that the Hebrew writer says, something about the nature of God as creator. The Hebrew writer considers the entire history of God's dealings with his people. Really, this chapter, if you wanted to give a summary of of the major old covenant stories, this would be a good chapter to start with. And he begins that 
litany, he begins that record of God's covenant dealings with his people by starting at the very beginning, namely the creation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Essentially, he's stating that all the promises of God are rooted in the fact that God is the creator of everything. Atheistic evolutionists who you will meet and be taught by at your universities and high schools, if if you go to a non-Christian high school, although I suppose you could encounter an atheistic evolutionist in in a Christian school, potentially, um, slipping under the radar, uh, atheistic evolutionists promulgate an origin myth that reduces God, our, our God, out of the picture, and they posit a contrary God. And that God is the eternal existence of matter. I want you to look very clearly at the, bat, at the end of verse 3. He says, the, the things which, uh, so that the, what is seen, that is the, the stuff all around us that we see, was not made out of things that are visible. This, this is an answer to atheistic evolutionary cosmologies or origins of the universe, theories of origins of the universe. They posit a different God, not Yahweh, but rather the infinitude of creation matter or infinitude of, of matter, irrespective of a creator, saying it eternally existed or eternally was given rise. And therefore, they posit a contrary God and necessarily arrive at a contrary universe. Because they establish material eternally as an existent thing in the universe, they therefore dismiss all of what Christianity has to say about their existing a spiritual realm as well. They have a contrary God. They necessarily have a contrary vision of the world. Our God made and therefore is king over both the heavens, that is the celestial realm, and the earth. I'm I'm taking this dichotomy in Genesis 1 to be literal. That is, God made the heavens and the earth, and that's not merely speaking about just the celestial heavens. God created the spiritual realm and the natural realm. Both of those things were made by the word of his power. And being the king over those and creator of those, he necessarily is causing it to come to a destiny. God is creator, and that creatorial role, that that right means that he is wielding time and history in such a way as to bring about an intended purpose. This is why the creation aspect of our faith is vital to understand. You cannot have Christianity without a creator. God rules over angels, spirits, and powers. He designed and guides constantly all galaxies, stars, black holes, nebulae. I was watching this YouTube video uh, last night, and it was one uh, shared by a friend, and it was just, you've probably seen it, it's quite popular. You start with Earth, or you start with Mercury and Venus, Earth, and each time the, the camera has to zoom out. Uh, how many of you have seen this kind of a video on YouTube? They get all the way to the largest known star, and they say it's something, I don't remember the numbers, and I, I don't really care about accuracy here, but it, it said something like, you know, 20 billion kilometers across or something like that. And that is an unfathomable distance. And what it, what it said was it's impossible to even comprehend something that large. You know, you or I are possibly, if you're tall, you're one meter tall, maybe. Most of you hope to be a meter. Um, 
and yet this is 20 billion kilometers or 20 trillion kilometers, I don't remember the number. But the example that they gave was, imagine a, like a carrier jet going 900 kilometers an hour trying to go around that star. They said it would take 1,100 years to just travel around, going as fast as the jets move on our, on, in our planet. A thousand years just to circumnavigate that star. Amazing, amazing sizes and distances. And yet our God is the creator of all this. And that star that they gave in that example was just one star in millions of galaxies. Amazing. Our God fashioned, form, and sustains plants, trees, birds, fish, beasts, insect, insects, and men. Our God is the creator of, over, of everything, and therefore he is able to speak to its intended purpose. Therefore, because he is the creator and is bringing about to a destiny, the whole world belongs to God. You don't live in a man's world. You don't live in a woman's world. You live in God's world. And because you live in God's world, you have a duty and an obligation to walk before him in a particular manner. Therefore, those Christians or supposed Christians who compromise the facts of the creation in order to seem relevant to outsiders, not only totally destroy the integrity of the scriptures, but they also betray the faith of the patriarchs. Moses, it is said, considered it righteous or considered it not worthy to be considered Pharaoh's son but rather to endure the sufferings of Christ. So there's this rivalry between those who wish to walk before God and those who wish to use the creation for their own purpose. And this rivalry did not start with atheistic evolutionism. It started with really the first sin and then the second major sin recorded in scripture. Seen first between Cain and Abel, each of the people of old faced opposition. And almost all of these people who are in this passage faced an opposition against the city which they were living in or the land which they were living in. I mentioned the context of this letter being from the Hebrew writer to the people. I want you to really examine in on that idea for just a minute. Through the building of the ark, Noah made a way of escape from the former earth. Now here, a city was not in view, but really all men. In leaving the land of his fathers, Abraham saw the land of promise, which his children would inherit. We know later on that the realm which Abraham lived in was, would be uh, judged hundreds and hundreds of years later, but the image is, is still established. This one is not directly mentioned by the Hebrew writer, so uh, it's a stretch, but I think it's appropriate. Abraham, through his faith, rescued Lot out of a city which was to be destroyed. And what was prophesied by Lot's wife? She turns back towards the city and becomes a pillar of salt. The reason why is that God was trying to say, give a warning to those who would come after her, that those who turn back are destroyed. Through faith, Joseph saw the destruction of Egypt. That is, by the Spirit, according to the promises that were given to Abraham and told to his children, Joshua told his son, or sorry, Joseph told his sons that when they go up from the land of Egypt, take my bones with you. Isn't that amazing that he had that foresight to understand that there was a destruction coming against Egypt and he wanted to escape? Through faith, Moses saw the condemnation and plagues coming against, against Egypt and led the people out. One of the interesting things about the Exodus, if you read it closely, uh, there are times where the plagues are spared from the people of Israel. But when we get to the final plague, 
that is the destruction by the angel of death, uh, that final plague was going to come against all the Israelites who did not mark their house. I want you to, to think about that very clearly. A few times in the, in the plagues, the people of God are spared, but at the last plague, unless they did something, that unless they obeyed God clearly, they would have been impacted by that destruction. By faith, Rahab, hearing of the coming judgment against Jericho, harbored the Israelites' spies and was spared, just like those Israelites who had put the blood over the lintel and the doorposts of their house. Rahab was told to hang a scarlet cord outside of her window, which marked her portion of the city wall. This, of course, is the main theme for the Hebrew writer. It's an apostolic letter warning of the danger of apostasy and turning back to Judaism. Just as Sodom, Egypt, Jericho, and Babylon have been destroyed, now Jerusalem will be. And his warning is this, if the believers forsake the gospel and join in with the Judaizers and return to Egypt or return to Israel, they will be destroyed. We saw last week or the week prior that it's not just the destruction of Jerusalem, but a year after the destruction of Jerusalem, over 700 cities in the land had been totally sacked. And we saw how this wasn't just the Romans, this was also the Israelites having a civil war in their own camp. That really was what caused the final destruction of Jerusalem, was the fact that the people of Israel were constantly warring against each other in a civil war that makes our civil war look quite tame. The writer even provides a short commentary to this effect in the middle of the litany. He says, those all died in faith, Verse 14, for people who speak thus made it clear that they are seeking a homeland. And then verse 15, this is really, I think, the point of this entire chapter. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. And that return is not some sort of return from exile. It's a return back into captivity. He's not saying return to the promised land. He's saying to return to where they came from. It says, if they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, then they would have had the opportunity to return. For the saints of old, for the Hebrew writer's initial audience, and for us today, considering the past context, the context of the initial letter to its recipients, and to us who have the grace of God to read this letter, that same warning is still in effect. If they do not leave the city of man, they cannot come to the city of God. And so by the city of God, I do not mean some sort of future city or even just heaven itself. Although we know that, according to Paul, to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. But rather that that city which was coming down out from heaven, as the revelator sees John the, the Apostle in Revelation 21, that it was coming down at the time, and it was still in the process of coming down, and is now here, namely the church, the body of Christ. Now, I don't have time to develop that, but if, you're, if that sounds funny to you, I would encourage you to come next week as we're going to examine what the Hebrew writer himself uses of his own words to describe that city which is coming. The church throughout all time, therefore, is one and the same. It is not Israel in the past and the church now. It is one and the same people of God through whom he calls to himself, elects in Christ, and redeems by Christ's blood. Abel, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, everyone named, these are all Christians. I want you to understand that clearly. There is no one who has ever been saved apart from the blood of Christ. These are all Christians in that by the Spirit of God, they look forward 
to the fulfillment of the promise. They were given promises. The, the proto-evangelion in Genesis 3.15, it will come about. God is telling, he, he actually says this to the serpent, which is an interesting uh, aspect of, of the gospel. He says, I'll put enmity between you and her seed, and one of her seed will bruise you on the head, even though you strike him on the heel. Christ dealt a suffering, destructive blow against the serpent. And he did so in a way that fulfilled God's initial promise, even after the first sin. Those who came before us looked forward in time to Christ, and we are now looking backward in time to Christ. It's interesting, a number of the epistles actually tell the Christians that they believe even though you do not see him. That's a very important thing to understand. You or I have never seen our Lord Jesus Christ with our eyes, yet we believe. In fact, Jesus himself gave a commendation after Thomas had doubted, saying, unless I put my hand in the holes. He then said, Jesus then replies, you know, you, you believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who will believe, even though they do not see. What the prophets of old anticipate, we celebrate. And so as the Nicene Creed teaches, there is one universal Catholic church. Now, Catholic, I do not mean Roman Catholic. I mean the literal precise word. Catholic means whole or universal over time. We do not just believe that there is one church on the earth now, and there will be like more churches in the future or there were more churches in the past. There is one people of God throughout all of time. And that, that church has a distinguishing feature that is all of its members are members by faith. As the Apostles' Creed teaches us, we believe in the communion of saints. I had an interesting thing happen to me. I, I don't like using um, illustrations from my personal life that much because I don't want to promote myself in a way, but I also, I don't really know of any other story that would do justice. But I was in a meeting this week, and I, you know, there were a number of people with me, and we were working through some very difficult circumstances, just, you know, really homeworky, and also yet somewhat stress-inducing results, uh, or, or problems. And I just had this moment that the Spirit of God kind of re rebuked my despair of the details of what was going on and the frustration with all the minutia that we were having to wade through. And by the Spirit of God, I just contemplated, you know, the, the, the nature of the church throughout the ages. And I was just able to look a little bit beyond my selfish realm of thinking right there, woe is me that I have to be in this meeting that's not going to get out for another two hours and deal with these things. And I, I, by the Spirit of God, I just was imagining all the different families who have faithfully raised their children. And I, I remember thinking of the, the Scottish Presbyterians who were holding devotions in their homes by firelight, by candlelight. And I was just able to understand my connection with a greater purpose outside of myself. This is what I believe the communion of saints means. Not that you contact the dead, not that you worship saints. Of course we don't mean that but rather that you consider yourself as part of the grand redeemed people on the earth, bringing and exercising dominion so that the kingdom of Christ would be established, that people would do justice and live with mercy and righteousness. That is what I think we mean when we say we believe in the communion of saints, that there is a great cloud of witnesses and that God is not a God of the dead, but a God of the living, and that Abraham is alive to God in the spirit and that he's your brother 
I believe strongly Abraham, Moses, Peter are our brothers. I think that's really the point. That's the, the arc of this passage as we, I hope to get to. So my true point is not to idolize the patriarchs, nor worship them or venerate them or any such thing, but rather to learn from their testimony and not to emulate their obedience, but to emulate their means of obedience. How is it that Abraham was able to offer up his, his son? When I think about that, especially now that I'm a father, that's, I, it's almost impossible to believe. But the scripture is true. It seems crazy unless it was actually the voice of God speaking. And surely it was that by Abraham's obedience, he might show that the faith of the patriarchs was one that believed in the resurrection. The Hebrew writer says that Christians who are experiencing great hardship, in telling them this, he directs them to consider those who have gone before and emulate their means of obedience, namely trusting in Christ. So the question is, this only church of God, how is it that all are summed up in Christ? Well, it's this at really the end of the book, or the end of the chapter. And all these, he's speaking about all those who've come before by name, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Remember Abraham, he goes to the promised land. He walks over the promised land and establishes altars in every place. And in fact, he actually establishes an altar at Bethel. And then his son later would come back and see and relay that same altar. And, and Abraham did not experience, he never inherited that which was given to him. Because it was given to him so that it might be actually fulfilled in being given to his children. Each one of these died, not having received what was promised. Verse 40, since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Now, the question is, does our arrival and reception of the gospel usher in their acceptance and perfection? As we'll see in the next chapter, that we've come to a city of, of the spirits of just men made perfect. No, it has nothing to do with your reception of the gospel or my reception of the gospel, but at the historical context of this book, it was written after Christ. That apart from us, they should not be rece receiving perfection, but with us. That is, all those who are not only approved, not only commended for their faith, but also made perfect and received into the heavenly assembly, all of them enter at the same time by the same means, namely Jesus Christ. In God's infinite wisdom, God considered those who have come before us as righteous, but not made perfect until the revelation that came through Christ's incarnation, ministry, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. That is what ushers in this plan. This was that Christ would be shown as the author of salvation for all who believe. Forever in your mind, you can put to rest all the doctrines of the dispensationalists who, who attempt to say that in the Old Testament or in the Old Covenant, people were established as righteous by doing the law or performing the sacrifices. None of that was the case. It's clear that they are part of the people of God by faith, and that faith in one person named Jesus Christ. Christ is the cornerstone on whom the entire edifice is built. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask you, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, speak to us and warn us of our own contextual strayings and sufferings and temptations. Lord, Hebrews was written for a people who were tempted to turn away from Christ. We pray, Lord, that you would, by your spirit, open up to us those things which constantly are warring for our affections and, and subtly telling us to drift from the faith 
in Christ. We ask you, Lord, that you would not only allow us to see our absolute need for trusting in, relying on, clinging to Jesus, but that we would move beyond that to also be able to tell others of our hope. And that that hope would be for us the means by which we're able to persevere. I pray, God, that you would give us a revelation only really by your spirit, that we are part of a grand mission, that you are in in the business of redeeming the world through your church. We pray, Lord, that you would establish a vital importance that we would have, that we would see the, the church and your mission through her as supremely valuable and, and worth entering into and coming alongside. We ask you, God, that you would not only deliver us from besetting sins and those things which tempt us to sway, but also that you would deliver us from weakness of character and timidity and fear of man that prevents us from speaking boldly about the truth of your son. We pray that we would look at these examples of of perseverance through suffering and that by their example, we would emulate their means of faith, not just their obedience. We pray these things for the glory of your son. Amen.